Welcome to the latest episode of the Cardiovascular Digital Health Podcast, where we interview academics and entrepreneurs at the front line of digital health. My name is Dr. Hamid Gumbari, and I am the Deputy Editor of the Cardiovascular Digital Health Journal. If you like this episode and would like to support our work, please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform and leave us a review, and visit our website, the Cardiovascular Digital Health Journal. Welcome to the latest episode of the Cardiovascular Digital Health Journal podcast. My name is Dr. Hamid Gambari, and I have two very special guests from the FDA with me today, um, Sonia Fulmer and Jessica Paulson. We've been really anxiously been excited about this uh, conversation, so uh, welcome and thank you for taking the time to join me for this conversation about the inner workings of the FDA. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Um, I would like to maybe start by asking you um, to introduce yourselves, tell us a little bit about your backgrounds and what is it that you do at the FDA? Sure, maybe I can start. So I'm Jessica Paulson. I am the OPEC Digital Health Associate Director, OPEC being the Office of Product Evaluation and Quality, which is primarily responsible for pre-market and post-market review of medical devices. So I actually recently stepped into this role. I was previously serving as the division director for cardiac electrophysiology, diagnostics, and monitoring devices within OPEC. Um, so just really excited to, to focus more of my time on helping support and advance our digital health efforts more broadly. And I, um, I've been at FDA for 12 years now, and my background is in biomedical engineering. And hi, I'm Sonia Fulmer. I'm the Acting Deputy Director of the Digital Health Center of Excellence at the FDA's Center for Devices and Radiological Health. I've been working at FDA for eight years. I started working on medical device policy more broadly in CDRH's Office of Policy before focusing on digital health policy exclusively when I moved to the Digital Health Group about two and a half years ago. Um, my background is in biophysical chemistry and science policy, and I enjoy applying that background to a broad spectrum of digital health work across different product areas in CDRH. That's terrific. Thank you for that introduction. Uh, you know, our, our, we are really focused on, on digital health and, um, you know, this, the regulatory landscape is, can be, let me just say, very confusing. Um, so, uh, so maybe you can kind of tell us a little bit about this uh, digital health center of excellence as, at the FDA and maybe kind of the kind of work that you do, and then maybe point us to some of the recent work that you've done at the Digital Health Center of Excellence. Sure thing. So we launched the Digital Health Center of Excellence in 2020 to further FDA's public health mission based on our recognition that digital health technologies would present significant needs and challenges to our field. This launch was driven by our ongoing commitment to advancing access to digital health technology collaboratively. And ultimately, our goal is to empower stakeholders to advance healthcare by fostering responsible and high-quality digital health innovation. And we find ways to tailor FDA's regulatory approaches to ensure that it's fit for purpose when it comes to these emerging technologies. And because we recognize that this is a shared goal for all involved in the space, we work to be a partner to our colleagues around the world, including through international efforts. And we want digital health technologies to be developed, deployed, and used responsibly and in the best interest of patients and consumers. So by developing innovative approaches to regulating digital health medical devices, by connecting the right stakeholders, and by sharing experience across CDRH and beyond, the Digital Health Center of Excellence can empower digital health stakeholders to advance public health. 
So our last couple of months have actually been pretty busy. Uh, and I'll just list a few of our recent milestones. We concluded the software pre-certification pilot program. That was an exploration of our innovative approaches to regulatory oversight of medical device software. We also finalized our guidance on clinical decision support software. And we launched a tool called the Digital Health Policy Navigator. And that helps developers understand the regulatory status of software functions. Uh, that's based on digital health policies that are spread across lots of different guidance documents. We've also updated the list of artificial intelligence or machine learning enabled medical devices. And we issued a new list of medical devices that incorporated augmented reality and virtual reality. Looking forward, I'm really hopeful that one of our next big milestones will be our draft guidance on predetermined change control plans for AI ML enabled devices. And we included that on our AI ML action plan. It continues to be a top priority for us. That's some of what we've been doing lately and what we're looking forward to coming up soon. Jessica, um, what is, uh, how, are you, what, how are you thinking about the Digital Health Center of Excellence and how it fits in into the regulatory landscape? Yeah, definitely. So it's, it's very collaborative um, in how we operate within FDA with the Digital Health Center of Excellence. So as I mentioned, I, I work in OPEC. Um, and so OPEC interacts you know, with, with members of the Digital Health Center of Excellence throughout the course of all of our day-to-day -day reviews. You know, this includes having them as members of our review teams, helping us more you know, consistently apply our digital health policies in our work. Um, one of my favorite things that we've also established, we call it our Digital Health Focal Point Program, which is um, it's an internally facing program within FDA, and it has representation across every device-specific review office, as well as you know, colleagues from our Digital Health Center of Excellence, colleagues from our Office of Science and Engineering Labs. It's just it's a really great cross-functional group that is able to meet regularly, discuss digital health concepts and devices of interest, challenging topics. It's just a, a really nice mechanism for us to promote consistency in our digital health reviews and our work and foster that continued collaboration across the organization because there's just there's so much work to be done and things are rapidly evolving. So that's been a really nice venue. Um, so I think it's safe to say that digital health is very much a, a team sport at FDA. Yeah, I'm amazed um, when I think about like the how large the FDA is and how many aspects of American economy is actually regulated by the FDA. And what's more amazing is that you know so many parts have to actually speak with each other. So, so can you maybe elaborate on like how do you how do you do that actually? Like, just because it's very hard for me to imagine how that actually is uh, done. So. How do, you, how do you different segments of the FDA speak to each other? Well, we have, and you know, it's kind of a priority for the Digital Health Center of Excellence as well to make sure that we are enabling those conversations across the FDA. Um, you know, we have a lot of work that we focus on within the Center for Devices and Radiological Health and programs like the focal point that Jessica just mentioned, but we also have different advisory boards that include folks beyond CDRH. Um, our colleagues at the Center for Drugs for biologics, for uh, combination products. They're all there to help make sure that we're all speaking the same language and understanding what each other are working on and pulling in um, relationships to be able to work together on some of those objectives and um, share back what we've learned as we release some of those things, what we're hearing from our stakeholders. And so as Jessica said earlier, it is really a very collaborative environment here. And so ensuring that we have those relationships across the FDA um, is uh, a key piece of the work that we do in the Center of Excellence. 
Sounds like a really fun place to work. <laughs> uh, the other thing that's like, pretty amazing for me, when, you know, speaking from someone who's on, on the outside uh, dealing with the FDA, is uh, your ability to communicate um, your policies to people that are going to actually be talking to you. You, you know, you're you're prolific in um, digital health center of excellence in kind of publishing guidelines, um, speaking with people that are interested in kind of doing work and, and inno innovate in this space. So you mentioned that several policies that you've, you've kind of recently released. Can you maybe share a little bit about um, one of the recent ones in the space of that clinical decision support software? Maybe you speak to that a little bit and kind of like how, how, did, how did you go about writing it? What is it about? And how, how do you hope that that would help um, prospective um, innovators kind of interact with that um, document? Sure. So the clinical decision support software final guidance, it provides our interpretation of four criteria in the law that must be met for a software function to be considered non-device clinical decision support. The problem is those four criteria are actually quite dense and difficult to understand. And so it's important for us in our guidance documents and in our supporting material that we release with it that we help developers understand whether or not their product would be regulated as a device in the decision support space or not. And so along with releasing the final guidance that provides our interpretation, and within that guidance, we include some more rules of thumb for people to understand a little bit more about those criteria. We include some more plain language for people to understand what, um, what needs to be met for us to not focus our oversight on those types of software functions as a device. And we've also released a couple supporting things like a graphic that helps summarize some of those uh, criteria in more plain language for developers to understand, you know, what kinds of inputs are regulated or for devices that are regulated versus the kinds of inputs for non-device clinical decision support software functions. You know, the, the signals, the images, the patterns, are the traditional types of images that, or the traditional types of inputs that are regulated devices, whereas medical information about a patient or other medical information is the type of input that can be a non-device CDS. And that sort of, you know, plain language understanding is included in the graphic, as well as a tool that we've released called the Digital Health Policy Navigator that I mentioned earlier. And this one kind of puts together all of the different pieces of the digital health policies so that you can answer a little bit more plain language questions about what your software function is doing rather than trying to step through a more complex law that is the device definition in the Food and Drug Cosmetic Act, but really to use that tool to help you understand um, what you should be thinking about for your product, what it's providing to the users, and whether or not that type of software function is the focus of our oversight as a device, not a device at all, or maybe something that's low risk enough that may be a device, but something that we wouldn't focus our oversight on. Um, yeah, definitely. Who are, people that are listening should try to find this document and look through it because it's it's pretty amazing. It's pretty clear, and you provide really clear definitions and guidelines of how companies should interact with the FDA. Um, can you maybe give you know? give some advice to companies who are kind of working in this space and developing clin clinical decision support tools and how should they think about their device, whether this is a regulated device or not, and 
if they have questions, how should they go about answering those questions beyond just reading the document that you publish? Yeah, I mean, I think the reading the guidance is probably the first stop. Um, and I know there's a lot of information in there and people are developing very specific products and they might have really specific questions that may not be as directly addressed. So one of the best pieces of advice I think we have is just reaching out to FDA. Um, so we actually have a digital health inbox, which is digitalhealth.fda.hhs.gov. Um, you can send any question you have there. We've got folks monitoring the inbox and they provide really timely responses. So it's just a really great way to get quick, helpful feedback and get connected with the experts directly. And that is beyond the pre-sub pathway, correct? Yeah, yeah. So pre-subs obviously have a more you know lengthy timeline where you provide specific information. The review team reviews it, provides you with feedback. There's a meeting. Um, this is more just you know you've got a quick question. You describe a product. There might be some interaction, but we can help point you in the right direction. Um, if you're asking more in-depth questions, it might end up being that a pre-sub is appropriate, but a lot of questions can actually be handled in a more informal, you know, timely means. That's terrific that FDA provides such a service. Yeah. Uh, most hospitals don't have a service like this. <laughs> um, okay. Um, so, you know, did this guidance change anything about the enforcement of or discretion policies at all? Um, can maybe, um, Sonia, you can elaborate on that a little bit more. Right, right. So it is important to keep in mind that that CDS guidance only clarifies what is a device, what's not a device. It just draws that line based on the law. But we already have other existing policies in place for software functions that may be a device definition. Maybe it trips one of the CDS criteria, but is low risk enough that we wouldn't focus our oversight on it. That's what we call enforcement discretion. And all of the policies that existed prior to the finalization of the CDS guidance are still in place today. Nothing has changed about any of those policies. And so, for example, we have a guidance called device software functions and mobile medical applications. And it includes an example of a software function that provides a simple calculator for a healthcare provider that would normally do in their, their clinical practice. So for software functions that's providing like a BMI output or some sort of um, you know, basic calculation that they understand it would normally do is under enforcement discretion by that guidance. The CDS final guidance doesn't change anything about that. Um, and the tool that I mentioned earlier can help walk through some of those other policies too, so that maybe you get through the tool and you may still be a device but you need to understand some of the other enforcement policies and that tool includes some questions you can answer to help understand whether or not you would be, you know, the type of software function that's under enforcement discretion or not. Can you speak a little bit to the criteria in the CDS document that you mean you use to think about whether this is a device that needs, that needs to be regulated? Sure, sure. So there's four criteria. Um, the first two describe the types of input, what type of input data can be used to make, that makes a difference to decide whether or not it's a device or not. So as I said, devices analyze signals, patterns, medical images, while the types of inputs used in non-device CDS are medical information about a patient. And then the third criterion talks about the outputs, what a non-device CDS provides and to whom. So non-device CDS provides recommendations to a healthcare professional. So if it's providing it to a patient, you're failing the criteria, you're not non-device CDS. Finally, the fourth criterion explains how the basis of recommendations 
should be communicated so that the healthcare professional doesn't rely on those recommendations. And so this piece to enable the healthcare provider to understand the basis of the software's recommendations, the software should include some plain language descriptions of the purpose, the inputs, and the underlying algorithm and any other relevant patient-specific information for consideration. And also I wanna make the point that this guidance more clearly than ever before and with more detailed examples than ever before makes it clear that even the most complex machine learning technologies, including algorithms based on technologies like deep neural networks, which are some of the most powerful and promising in healthcare, they can meet the CARES criteria for exclusion from the medical device definition under the CDS policy. And that guidance provides a roadmap for developers based on examples and the policies in there that they can use to guide them to if they want to go down the non-device path. Super interesting. And it sounds like something you should be really thinking about from the beginning when you're developing your algorithms or Absolutely. devices. Um, that's terrific. Um, uh, just, uh, Jessica, is there anything else you wanted to add to, to that? No, I think Sonia covered it. It's a really, we're so excited that the final policy is out. It's been a long time coming. Um, so we, you know, if anyone reads it and has any questions, just again, feel free to reach out. We know there's a lot to digest there, um, but we're here and happy to help. Terrific. Um, you know, this the topic that, you know, I'm really interested in and a lot of our listeners are interested in is AI, ML and AI, specifically AI ML enabled medical devices. Um, we were so excited to see that the FDA recently published a list of um, all the devices that have FDA clearance that are in AI, AI and ML enabled. So can you maybe um, kind of tell us how is FDA thinking about these devices? How are you approaching these technologies? And how are you thinking about the trade-offs between the benefits and potential challenges that they may introduce into the clinical care of patients. Yeah, so this is just one of the most exciting areas, I think, for medical devices. And FDA is taking a very collaborative approach. So in recent years, we've done a lot of work. We've published a white paper. We've held workshops, uh, advisory committee meetings on topics like patient trust in AIML devices. And as Sonia had mentioned, we've actually published an AIML device software action plan that describes FDA's future plans in this space. And uh, one of the key guidances or policy development areas um, is related to predetermined change control plans for AIML enabled devices. So in a nutshell, this is you know, an approach that would allow for us to review and align on specific modifications uh, and the associated validation protocols, methods, acceptance criteria, et cetera, um, such that those modifications could then be made to a device once it's marketed without actually having to come back to FDA for review. So the idea behind this approach is that it would really allow for more timely iteration of the software and improvement of the device performance in a way that, that still ensures that the device is continuing to be safe and effective. Um, so that's one of the really exciting areas for policy development. Um, and then as far as, you know, benefits and challenges, I think, um, you know, I think it's really clear that AI ML based technologies come with a lot of opportunity and a lot of benefits like the potential for earlier disease detection and diagnosis, or just the fact that these algorithms are able to learn, adapt and improve. 
Um, but with that, there's a, a lot of challenges in this space. Um, you know, things on our mind are, you know, making sure data sets used for training, tuning, testing are, are fit for purpose and, and really adequate to support the technology at hand. Um, we, you know, another thing we have to focus on is really identifying and minimizing bias in these technologies while also ensuring transparency and trust for users in the technology. So a lot of promise, also a lot of challenge. Um, so it's an area that I think is really going to continue to benefit from that collaborative approach that we've, we've been taking and plan to continue to take just, you know, with stakeholders across the entire ecosystem. Yeah, I want to double click on that point a little bit. Um, <laughs> you know, um, you know there's been a tremendous focus within the clinical community on you know, risk of bias, health equity, um, particularly in medical devices, you know, highlighted by the, you know, your recent workshop on SpO2 and its kind of uh, its effectiveness in, in patients with different skin tones. Um, can you maybe share a little bit about what FDA is doing to advance health equity? How are you think about, thinking about this and how are you going about doing this? Sure. So as we're considering how to best regulate these types of devices, we do need to consider the impact these technologies have across all patients. And CDRH is committed to advancing health equity. It's one of our 2022 to 2025 strategic priorities. And our collective approach to digital health technologies presents an opportunity and a responsibility to address issues related to health equity. We need to assure that products are evaluated and perform well in all patients. And we have an opportunity to enhance patient access to healthcare. So technology, including AIML enabled medical devices should be designed and targeted to meet the needs of diverse populations. At FDA, we continue to see that those who have suffered overall from the digital divide, including those living in rural communities, those living in poverty, they can experience better outcomes when digital health technologies are made available to them. But to enable the greatest public health benefit from these technologies, it's critical that patients and healthcare providers have trust and confidence in the information used to develop and evaluate them, as well as their output. And it's important to include the information about how these devices were studied and on which populations in the device or its labeling so that users can have confidence in the product. That's what Jessica was talking about earlier with transparency to users. So these are some of the things we're thinking about when we're shaping our policy priorities and providing guidance on these topics is a priority for us too. Are there guidelines on how many um, patients from each subgroup have to be included in your um, clinical trials, uh, particularly when it comes to AI, ML? Is there guidelines that people can refer to? I think it, it really comes down to the, the type of product it is, what the intended use that you're targeting will be, and um, the conversations that you have with FDA will inform, you know, what the different populations should be so that you can, you know, reach the claims that you're hoping for, for the type of product. So it's hard to say, you know, across the board, um, you know, one answer, unfortunately. Yes. Yeah, this is one of those things that um, we interact really closely on in pre-subs with companies as they're developing a specific device and making sure that the validation and the, you know, how they're testing and studying a device is really going to support that marketing application. Um, so again, you know, the earlier you engage with FDA, the better so that everyone can be set up for success here. 
it sounds like it's something that they should include in their pre-sub if they have a yes. question to make sure that they're hitting it. You don't definitely want to get to the end and find out that you didn't include the patients that you're planning to get approval for. Um, okay. Um, so what what kind of barriers are you seeing in adoption of digital health technologies in practice? I know I am seeing a few, I have a few thoughts about how how we're going to implement these, but how is the FDA thinking about barriers and, and how does that affect your regulatory decision? Yeah, so I think, you know, we've all seen that healthcare is changing, right? You know, with the introduction of more and more digital health technologies, including, you know, over-the-counter ECG apps, for example, and more patient-facing technologies. So it's really exciting uh, to see these technologies advance and, you know, really empowering users with that information about their health. But um, I think this came up a lot at HRX, actually, in some of the conversations about how, um, you know, there's challenges once these devices actually get to market, they're safe and effective for their intended use, but how do they actually work into the clinical workflow? You know, there's interoperability challenges that we hear a lot about. There's just this sheer volume of data that clinics are being, um, you know, bombarded with and, and thinking about, you know, how to best handle that massive influx of data. How do we find ways to make sure that healthcare providers are able to really hone in on the actionable data um, to really drive improvements in patient care? And I think that's really tough. <laughs> I won't say that FDA has all the answers. We're here to be partners in this, um, but it, it's something that we're going to have to continue to work on together. But would love to hear your thoughts too on what you're seeing as far as barriers. Well, um, patients are using these devices already in clinical practice. So we're faced with this uh, impossible situation where people come in, they kind of expect you to react to the information that they're providing for you, but you, we have really no way of evaluating in a timely fashion. We have no way of making it a permanent part of the medical record. And we have no way of monitoring whether the patients are using these appropriately for the appropriate clinical condition that these devices are meant to be used in. So um, I think for a first, you know, first and foremost, it, it starts with education, education of the clinicians first. They have to understand, you know, how you know, these devices, how do they work? What's the best ideal situation to use them? Um, then there needs to probably be systems that uh, kind of integrate these data into the clinical work stream with specific decisions tied to, um, you know, severe cases or cases that need attention. Um, it has to be systems that deal with the number of false positives that these devices produce. Um, and there has to be a way to make sure that, you, you know, hospital systems can capture some of the value that these devices are providing. So they can be, you know, there could be a you know, long-term financial model that's viable for the hospitals to continue to adopt these technologies. So, you know, we, we're thinking about, you know, we're thinking about, we think that this needs to, you know, probably be used in a specific digital health clinic, a digital health program that the hospitals need to develop. Um, you know, the, what that is and what devices you use, I think has to be worked out. But that's how we're thinking about it at University of Michigan. I don't, I think, every, you know, every, we're all trying to figure this out. But what we love is that FDA is taking a very, 
um, proactive approach in kind of evaluating these devices, setting standards, but also communicating those standards to the to the companies so the companies can meet those standards. They engage clinicians. So this kind of you know the regulatory, clinical, and industry partnership, I think, is a great way of thinking about integrating these into clinical practice. Um, so yeah, I, I, you know, you, the, what you guys are describing is a really interesting and exciting and collaborative place to work. I, I kind of want to work for the FDA now after this conversation. Um, so, is it how? You know, maybe you could describe like how your day is like, you know, we wake up in the morning, it's, you know, what do you do? And, and maybe you could, you know, I mean, obviously we want the best people to work for the FDA and it's really hard. I, I can't even imagine how you go about recruiting people for the FDA because like, say, for example, it's an ECG watch monitor that someone wants to approve. You need so many people with such deep expertise, right? And these, there's not so many of them. So how do you go about finding these people? And if someone's interested, how do they go about, you know, working for the FDA? Yeah, yeah. no, that's one of my favorite questions because it really is such a great place to work. Um, so as far as a, a typical day, I would say that no day is the same. Um, obviously a day starts with coffee and then, you know, it really <laughs> includes a, a mix of internal and external activities. So can be everything from, um, you know, I get to work closely with Sonia. So collaborating closely with our Digital Health Center of Excellence colleagues to develop new policies, which is, I, I personally really enjoy. I find that to be a fun um, part of our work. Um, then it's also, you know, helping our review staff across many product areas implement those existing digital health policies and make sure they're implementing them consistently and clearly um, in their pre-market reviews of novel technologies. Um, we do a lot of meetings with industry. So we, um, you know, are often discussing design and development plans for, for new devices that they want to submit to FDA, like we've talked about through pre-submissions, as an example, um, you know, making sure that we're answering questions about hey, what are FDA's expectations for this device type and this clinical study? So a um, lot of interaction on that front. And that I think that variety in our day really keeps it interesting. Um, so I, I know when I um, first started, you know, and was graduating school, I actually learned about FDA opportunities through an alumni connection, because um, I had no idea that, you know, FDA would be a place for me to think about working as a, you know, graduating with a biomedical engineering degree. Um, but, you know, I ended up, I heard a little bit about it, thought it sounded really interesting, applied, the rest is history. Um, it's just, it's, it's such a nice place to work with really incredible and smart people that are all just really deeply motivated by our public health mission. Um, so if anyone's interested, would definitely encourage you, you know, reach out, listen, you know, you can ask us questions about what opportunities might exist at FDA. We hire engineers, scientists, clinicians, and there's a variety of, of functions you can serve at FDA, whether it be in the review groups or in policy positions. Um, so I think we, you know, obviously would be happy to chat with anyone that might be interested in exploring a job at FDA. How would they reach out to you if they are interested? You can actually reach out to the mailbox that we mentioned earlier. It's digitalhealth at fda.hhs.gov. Um, we accept resumes through that mailbox and um, then target them to the, um, you know, if you're interested in, in working with the Digital Health Center of Excellence, um, we were able to um, 
review those resumes. And I think over the summer, we actually released a newsletter that detailed a couple of different positions that we're hiring for. And so you might want to um, recheck your email for that. But overall, you know, I think that's a good starting point, um, unless Jessica has any other recommendations. Yeah, I mean, we, um, there are the traditional means like USA Jobs has a lot of our job postings. Um, but I would say if you want to get in contact more directly, you know, reaching out to the inbox, you're, you're welcome to email me or email Sonia, we can put you in touch with the right folks, depending on your expertise and your interest, because as you've hopefully heard today, you know, FDA is a big place and there's a lot of opportunity, a lot of different functions um, that we serve. So, um, you know, don't be shy, feel free to reach out and we can uh, get you in contact with the right people. No, that sounds Great. It sounds like you have free coffee as well. So <laughs> we do not. <laughs> we do not, but I'll, I'll give you a cup of coffee if you come to my office. I got an espresso. <laughs> um, okay. So can you um, leave our audience with a place where they can go and learn a little bit more about the Digital Health Center of Excellence, maybe a URL or Twitter handle, anything they could follow? Yeah, I think you can just, I mean, honestly, using your search engine is a great place to start, but I think the URL is fda.gov slash digital health. That'll bring you to the Digital Health Center of Excellence's main webpage where we have tons of links to all the different activities we have ongoing. Um, and then as we mentioned, that inbox is a great way to reach out if you have any questions, um, but hopefully you can find a lot of the information that you're looking for there. Wonderful. Well, I wanna thank you again for taking the time from your very busy schedule to speak with me. Uh, I hope to have you back again to you know, talk more about all the other amazing things you guys are doing at the FDA. But thanks again from me and all our listeners at the Cardiovascular Digital Health Journal. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having us.